he came over to the car with a Ziploc bag with five phones in them and said, I need these back in an hour. These came straight from the space capsule that had splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean an hour before and had not been touched by anybody since they had been in outer space. That's Jason Hare, Emmy award-winning director and renowned documentary filmmaker. And we opened the bag and started playing the videos. And this is the first time that anyone had ever seen these videos that were taken by the first civilian mission to space. It was, it was surreal. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Jason Harris to discuss why there are no shortcuts in the journey to mastering your craft, how having a healthy fear of failure can actually be an advantage, and what separates elite level achievers from everyone else. They don't look back. And in my business, you want them to. So they're reluctant to sit down. You have to strap them into a chair and say, take me back to that moment in 1986 when you scored 63 what were you thinking you want these people to have the the pleasure of sitting back and reflecting on what they've done to get where they are and to take pride in that and to express pride in that and then to maybe offer up some wisdom about how they did it you know so to sit these people down it's almost cathartic sometimes is that they enjoy it once they know they're strapped in and they have to look back and they can almost become wistful because they don't get a chance to do that that often. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Jason Hare is an absolute beast. Or, put another way, he's one of the most highly regarded documentary filmmakers living today. Some of his notable projects include HBO's Andre the Giant and the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls documentary series The Last Dance, which earned him an Emmy Award for Best Director. I began our conversation by asking Jason about his early years. What fueled his passions for sports and cinematography? My brothers. Anything my brothers did, I did. They are three and six years older than me. Brandon and Paul, respectively. And all I wanted to do was tag along with them and be like them and, and hang with their friends. We were doing one of two things at all times, either playing sports, actually three things, playing sports, watching movies, or making our own movies, oftentimes based on those movies that we watched. But we got a video camera in my house when I was like eight years old. And then we just started chasing each other around with that camera and making our own movies and, and just constantly like making documentaries when we didn't even know what documentaries were at that point. We were just filming things just to watch ourselves. What was the draw? I mean, that even early on, like to the documentaries or telling stories. I mean, there's obviously a lot of approaches you could have taken. Like what specifically about those stood out? That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure that it's, if you go deep into my 
background culturally, it's Irish culture is, is really based on, and I'm not like straight off the boat Irish, but my grandparents were. And a lot of that is based on storytelling and that's how people communicated with each other. I also think that being the youngest, I didn't have brute strength. So if I was going to have a voice at the dinner table at night, I was going to have to tell a compelling story. I was going to have to do something to get attention because it wasn't going to come from elbowing somebody out of the way to get the, the last piece of chicken. It was going to come from getting their attention by trying to be funny or trying to be entertaining or any way I could just to kind of be in the mix. So a lot of people, I mean, especially a lot of like cinematographers, they may look at what you're doing and say, I would love to interview Michael Jordan, but that oftentimes seems out of reach. So what, what was kind of the journey on the way to getting there? Because from what I've read, you know, with working at NBC Sports, there was humble beginnings. It took a while to, to mm -hmm. gain some of these opportunities. Yeah, I attribute that to my parents. I mean, as far back as when I was 11, I was in sixth grade and I wanted to be a sportscaster. And this guy, Bob Lobel, was the, he was kind of like the Ron Burgundy of Boston back in, in 88, it would have been. And I wanted to interview him about how he got into it and how he, how do you become that? And I had no reason to interview him if I had no credentials. I wasn't going to call up and say, can I interview you? I had to say, am I going to interview you for something? So we started the sixth grade globe in my elementary school, which was 12 kids it was four pieces of paper stapled together, typed mostly by my mom in our basement. The kids would submit handwritten articles. And then my mom and I would stay up late, you know, once a month and lay out the whole newspaper, which was just, again, like four pieces of printer paper stapled together. But that was the way that I could call Bob Lobel and say, can I interview you for this newspaper? My mom was the one who gave me the idea. I said, how do I get him to do this? She said, just call called WBZ Channel 4 in Boston, called the main number, asked for Bob Lobel, asked for the sports department, and then don't hang up until you get him on the phone. We know he's there. We just saw him on the news. So that was a Monday night, I remember, and I went upstairs and I called and they put him on the phone and I explained who I was and that I wanted to interview him for my school paper. And he said, come down a week from today at 4 p.m. And my grandmother drove me down after school to WBZ in Boston. And I interviewed him on the set of People Are Talking, which back then was hosted by Tom Bergeron, who now we know from Dancing with the Stars and those things. But this was just like a little local news operation. And to me, though, that was the same thrill as interviewing Jordan or, or any other celebrity you would meet today. For me, at 11 years old, that guy was my idol. So hard-hitting questions like, what's your favorite food? And things like that. But that was my first kind of foray into it. And I've, I've just always been really interested in getting to know people's stories and getting to know what they thought about certain things and what made them tick. So, I mean, it's hard to argue that you really paid your dues just over the years, even as a production assistant. When you're building out and leading a team today, what do you look for in basically assembling that team? What type of people are you looking for to kind of bring on board with you? The ideal person you want is someone who has a fear of failure. There, there are certain unteachable things. They say like in sports, you can't teach speed. You can't teach a fear of failure. You can't teach just a core value of teamwork and wanting to pick up the person next to you and wanting to deliver because if you don't, the person next to you is going to be burdened with what you didn't deliver on. So that's a huge component to it. And then having the kind of personality where we want to have a beer with you after work too. 
you know, I used to say we have a no assholes policy, but everyone has a no assholes policy. No one has a pro assholes policy, but it's finding like-minded people who share your passions, oftentimes your sensibilities, but that's not necessarily imperative because you need people who don't have your sensibilities because as my old boss used to say, there has to be some blood on the tracks at the end of the process. We have to have some fights and have some pushback against like how we're doing things or else, because if it was just your way, you could clone yourself and make 10 people who were going to just be yes men. But that's not what leads to the best product, at least creatively. So fear of failure, an individual voice, creative voice. It's been really, really rewarding to see people whose confidence has burgeoned as they've been part of the team's that I've put together, find their own voices and be directing their own things now. That's um, the opportunities of the many. Maybe the one that I value the most is that now I get to nurture younger talent. We have a program that we're doing with um, Viacom right now, all based on the fact that right after the last dance, I had a conversation with my agent and said that a lot of the edit rooms that I go into in the doc space are populated by people who look exactly like me. A lot of white men, a few white women, but very few people of color in those edit rooms in that particular field. And we could get, go into the whole thing about the, the history of docs and, and why that was not the most generous place for people of color to gravitate towards. So that all led to a five documentary project that we're doing with Viacom that's going to be entirely directed and produced by young directors of color telling stories that are personal to them. So that's been a really rewarding part of this thing. But it comes down to that the passion for what we're doing, a fear of failure, and the congeniality to want to go grab dinner or grab a beer after work. So when you say fear of failure, do you mean kind of like in the Andy Grove sense, like only the paranoid survive and that paranoia produces a better work product? Or do you mean it in some other way? I'm not pro-paranoia. I, I was that person when I was in my early 20s, especially. I valued, because I came up, the network environment, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, it was a badge of honor if you stayed until three in the morning and got up the next day and came in at seven in the morning and threw up because you were so exhausted. And I went through all of that stuff. It's one of the reasons I got out of that corporate network world because there's got to be room for life outside of that. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't work hard, but I was 50 pounds lighter when I started three months into NBC back then 24 years ago because I was so stressed out. My clothes barely fit me because I was so stressed out. I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. All I cared about was not failing at that job. And that was a $100 a day job living in New York. I mean, it was basically you're qualifying for food stamps at that point. But I'd, I had a massive screw up my first week that I was at NBC. For people who know how to score golf, the lower the score, the better. So minus six is better than minus two. And we weren't allowed to touch the machines because it was all union machines. So in the morning, we're building all the graphics for that day of sports updates. It was a Saturday afternoon show. And we would come on at like halftime with like, what else is going on in the world of sports? It was a football game. And one of the things was a, a golf tournament. And I instructed the union guy who was typing in all the scores to put minus two ahead of minus six. I was so nervous that day that I couldn't get my pen in the cap. I had, my hands were shaking underneath the table. We were live. I had a headset on. We're live in a control room. Three, two, one, you're live on the air. And I didn't know what I was doing. There was no training program for this. Just thrown into the fire. 
I forgot my social security number. So I didn't get paid that week because I couldn't sign in. And I was too embarrassed to tell them, like, I forget that my number. I was just panicking, but trying to exude at least some semblance of poise. And that mistake was like, I got called into the boss's office that the following Monday morning. And he said, if that ever, I'll never forget it. He said, if that ever happens again, I will blow your ass out of this building. And it was overlooking the rink at Rockefeller Center. And I remember just picturing myself like a human cannonball being out the side of, of 30 Rock. And I, I, it was raining out and I walked outside, walked out of his office and down this long hallway to the elevator and walked outside. It was pouring rain and I was just walking around Manhattan, getting soaking wet, thinking, what the hell have I done? I moved from Boston. I was, I was working at um, Putnam Investments at the time in a good financial job what every good liberal arts student is supposed to do when they leave school. If you're an athlete at a liberal arts school in the Northeast, you go get a job at an investment bank or a mutual fund or whatever, and then you have two and a half kids and a white picket fence, and that's what you do with your life. I left that behind, much to my dad's chagrin, because he was a, at the time, he was a CFO and, and a CPA, and he really wanted me to go into finance, I think. And I gave it all up to come down here, and the first week on the job, I almost screwed the whole thing up. So... My parents came down to visit me a couple of months later and my mom could hardly recognize me. She thought that there was something wrong. Like I, I was like, I'd become an addict or something like that, but it was just stress. So when I say fear of failure, I mean fear of disappointing those on the team around you. Everyone has a role. Now it's my job as a team leader, or it's any team leader's job to put you in the right place to succeed and to give you exactly what's expected of you. And I wasn't always good at that because I didn't always have bosses who were good at that. And I thought like, all right, you're really good if you know how to do this without being told. And that's bullshit. It's not fair. And now I was lucky enough to make it through the fire and just kind of like improvised. But you should, you, you owe any 21-year-old off the street, any 61-year-old off the street, the dignity of saying, okay, you're hired for this job. This is what you're expected to do. These are the days you're expected to do this on. These are the hours within which you're expected to do it. There has to be parameters. So I've learned more from bad bosses than I have from good bosses about how to lead. And I'm not the best leader still, but I certainly have learned more of what not to do than what to do. So I imagine a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, they're familiar with The Last Dance. But before we get there, I want to talk about the Andre the Giant documentary. Which for the people who have not had an opportunity to watch this yet on HBO, it's absolutely phenomenal. This is probably my first exposure to a documentary that you had directed. How did that come to be? Because you mentioned that you almost turned that down. Yeah. So Bill Simmons, um, who co-created 30 for 30 at ESPN with Connor Shell, that was among the first slate of docs he wanted to do. Maybe the five docs that were real passion projects to him. He wanted to tell that Andre the Giant story as part of the 30 for 30 franchise. And whatever was happening politically between Vince McMahon, the WWE, and ESPN, it never came to fruition. So when Bill then left ESPN and started his partnership with HBO, that project was brought to life again. And he called me and said, um, we're going to do this and I'd love for you to direct it. And I initially said no. So Bill called me and said, I had a relationship with him already because I had done the Fab Five 30 for 30, which he oversaw for ESPN. I also did a short film about a boxer called The Brink for Grantland when he ran Grantland at ESPN. So he called and said, I, I think that you'd be great for this. 
And I said, I don't think I'm your guy because I'm not passionate about wrestling. I didn't grow up watching it. I know people who are passionate about wrestling. That's among the most passionate fan bases that you can find. And I just assumed that they wanted to cover Andre the Giant as if he was a quote unquote real athlete. So cover his winning the belt or whatever, as if it was a real event, like the World Series in 1975 would be, would do Andre winning, winning the belt or having some big match at Madison Square Garden in 1975. I said, I'd be more interested in telling the story of Andre Rusimov, this seven foot, 500 pound guy who had to navigate a world that was not built for him. What it was like for him as a kid, when this condition started to develop, how he got into the business, how he navigated the business, how he navigated the world, how he got into in and out of a car, how he got in, on and off a plane. And Bill luckily said, that's exactly what we want to do. So Peter Nelson at that point was the president of NBC Sport, uh, HBO Sports, and he's also a friend. And Bill and Peter and myself, we all sat down and said, all right, we're going to do this. And we started shooting that, I think in April of 17, we started shooting it. And then in March of 18 is when we premiered at the Cinerama Dome in L.A. It was such a unique approach um, that you took to that. I mean, it, literally everyone that I've spoken to that's watched that documentary had tears in their eyes, mm -hmm. like at the end of it, which is not what you would expect when you're watching the Andre the, the Giant documentary. It's not what I expect. It's not what I intended to do. My one misgiving about it when, when the review started to come out and people started to give some feedback was everyone said, oh, it's so, so sad. It wasn't meant to be sad. It was meant to be a celebration of this guy's life and the hardships he endured. And he essentially chose to die that young because he refused to get treated and more or less drank himself to death. I and mean, when you're drinking 7,000 calories a day, I don't care how big you are, you're not doing any favors to your liver or other organs in your body, especially when you have a congenital disease on top of that. So it wasn't meant to be a downer. And when you see on Twitter, like all these, you know, crying emojis, and it took me a little bit to understand what people were trying to say, because it wasn't meant to be like talking on the heartstrings on purpose in a maudlin, melodramatic way. You know what I mean? It's one thing if you cry because you're emotional and you appreciate this guy's life and you see how far he's come and it's a shame that he died early. The thing that was, was really my favorite aspect of the ending of that doc was the chair that his mom made for him. And I, I mean, I get chills thinking about it now that like, no matter who you are, you have a mom. And no matter who she is, she probably adored you 99.999% of the time. So to Andre's mom, that was her little boy. No matter how gargantuan he was, all she wanted was for him to be comfortable and safe. So she had this chair built for him so that he could be comfortable and sit at the table with the rest of them. I hope that that's what, when people say sad, I think it, that's a catch-all sometimes for emotional. Like, oh, that was so sad. I hope that it just means that it was heartfelt and it evoked emotion in you because it wasn't meant to be sad, if that makes sense. Did you find just, uh, just over the course of your career as you would get new projects and like new challenges, let's say at different levels of complexity and ambition, that they came at times where thankfully you had the prior experiences that you had, like as, as, you know, as we moved to talking about The Last Dance, like if you had the opportunity to do that, let's say much earlier in your career, do you believe that you would have been prepared for that or did you have to kind of experience some of these other projects to get there? There are no shortcuts. And that comes with learning your trade whatever it is, learning oftentimes by mistake, finding your voice. And it's not just in a creative field. You can find your voice as an accountant. You can find your voice in, in, a, in a million different ways, but how you navigate your chosen profession. You don't come out of college and you don't come into your 20s just knowing how to do that. It's not like being a basketball player and just having a preternatural talent to come out of 
high school and go straight into the NBA. Even those guys, it takes them a while to find their footing. So I would have been terrible. Oh my God. Last Dance, when I was in my 20s, I would have been terrible. Last Dance, two years before the Last Dance, I would have been terrible. Last Dance was my, my first real opportunity to delegate and quote unquote coach and put people in the right positions. Because up until then, one of my biggest failings is that I would get very impatient and try and do things myself. I taught myself how to edit because of that. Like that, just move over, I'll do it. And I'm sure that that rubbed a lot of people who trained to be editors the wrong way. And I'm sure I did that, countless other examples of that, editing or not. There was too much work to do that. We had four full-time editors on staff. I was doing some editing as well, but we had four full-time editors on staff. There aren't enough hours in the day for me to have said, all right, move over, I'm gonna do this myself. I'd still be editing if that was the case. And there were certain people who were better at certain things or certain people who were better at editing verite footage and certain people who were better working with archival footage and certain people who were better editing montages and, and, and cutting to music and hitting beats. So I had to, instead of saying like, oh, so-and-so said, this guy Ralph is a great editor, hire him, I trust so-and-so. Couldn't do that because oftentimes those people, they're good at what the person who recommended them for needed them for, but maybe you need them for a completely different purpose. So it made me more vigilant about doing the work, interviewing people, getting to know them, seeing where their strengths were and putting everybody, I hope, in the right place to succeed. Where also the outcome is a better product because they oftentimes are better than I am at this and they feel empowered and thus they're way more enthusiastic and happy. And the happier and more enthusiastic your team members are, the better the final product is going to be. That was a huge lesson for me in that, you know what? Give people the autonomy and the trust to say, I need you to do this right and trust your gut. I trust you. You're here for a reason. That was a big mantra of mine towards the end as we were like really on deadline is you're here for a reason. You were hired for a reason. You're on this team for a reason. Flex that muscle. Make us proud. Go. So I didn't have it for Andre. I edited a lot of Andre by myself. It was a, it was a joy to do because that was just a, a one-off doc and that's all I was concentrating on. Last Dance was really 10 docs in one. So I didn't have the, the mental bandwidth, not to mention the physical. I want to talk about kind of the preparation that went into The Last Dance because originally it wasn't going to be 10 episodes, right? I think it was originally maybe eight episodes and then even the, the research leading up to it and then all, of course, all the interviews that you had to do during. What did that look like? I, I want people to get a sense of like what the scale was of that. I mean, I, I believe you spent two years just doing research. Yeah, so July of 2016, Mike Tolan, the executive producer, came to me and told me about the project and they already had a deck made for the project. At that point, it was outlined to be eight episodes. One of the final pages of that deck had 10, this was four distributors, because they were still deciding who was gonna air this thing, who was gonna buy it. And it was to prove to distributors, we have some big names here. So the final page was 10 potential directors. And it was like Peter Berg, Spike Lee, my friend Ezra Edelman, who did the OJ doc. Ezra was by far the least known person on that page. And I'm looking at Mike like, what am I doing here, man? Like, <laughs> no one can even pronounce my name if they see my name on a paper, but they certainly don't know who I am. So I felt like it was like they got no, they got 10 no's, and then they started going through their Rolodex, and they finally got to the H's, and they said, all right, let's call Jason Hare. I think that's where the little brother in me came out. All right, good. I'm going to show you 
that I can do it as well or better than, than these people. Who knows if that's true or not? But the competitor in me, the little I turn into the eight-year-old in my backyard playing wiffle ball at that point, wanting to prove to my brothers that I can play with them and their friends. That's what those directors, those 10 guys on a page, that's what they were to me when I saw that. So I went into kind of bunker mode for two weeks and wrote out a 14-page outline of what I thought the eight episodes should be. That made its way to Jordan's people and some execs at the NBA. And then I had a meeting with them. And they said to me, do you think that this can be eight episodes, wall to wall, just the footage from 98, no interviews? And I said, no. And that's when I thought this is not gonna happen because I can't tell them yes, because it won't work. As bad as I want this job, it will not work. We need current interviews from people. And I think this should be about more than the 98 season. We should use the 98 season as a lens to examine that era. So it was very cordial. We've all had meetings where it's like, oh, you shake hands. You say, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. And like, it went fine, but I probably won't hear from them again. And I called Mike and said, like, I need to rearticulate what I wanted to articulate to them because the meeting ended before I thought it would. And he said, all right, they'll be in town again and, and I'll set something up. So he did. And he wasn't there. And there was an assistant who gave me an address for this second meeting I was going to have with them. This is now at the NBA headquarters. And it was one of those like soupy hot New York City days. Cloudy, about to thunderstorm, 96, high humidity. And I'm in a suit with no tie because I wanted like, this is the first time I met these people in person now. They transposed the numbers on the address of the building. So I ended up about 12 blocks down Fifth Avenue from where I should have been and showed up after sprinting in that weather. <laughs> and, and I'm a sweater anyway, in you know, winter clothes basically. Got to that meeting 15 minutes late and I didn't realize that they were told, Jason wants to present something to you. All I wanted was to continue the conversation in person. And I figured as long as they're there, I'll just be in this meeting and say hello. And when I'm called upon, I'll speak. Luckily, I made a bunch of notes to myself on my phone on the way up in the Uber. Because if I didn't do that, I would have had to improvise a speech because I got there and if I moved, I was going to start pouring sweating. <laughs> and they said, take off your jacket. If I took off my jacket, it looked like I had just jumped in the Hudson River. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm chugging water, trying to cool my body temperature down. And now I have eight sets of eyeballs turned at this big boardroom table saying, okay, why did you call us here? I'm thinking, I didn't call you here. <laughs> you invited me to this meeting. But then we just had a really honest discussion about, I was saying to them that I, I thought that this could be more than just the 98 season. And that was kind of a pivotal moment. But that was, you know, August of 16. They had to internally between the NBA and um, the Jordan brand and this production company, they had to decide how they were going to divvy up their pie of the back end of this project. And I wasn't privy to those conversations because I was just going to be a hired gun as a director. So I went off and did Andre the Giant during that. But all the while, on the way over to Paris to shoot in Andre's village, I was reading Michael Jordan books. All the while, I was researching the entire time when I was juggling these other projects, just in the hopes that it would be necessary at some point. So it wasn't until September, I know the date, I'm good with dates for some reason. But this was two days before my birthday, so it was September 27th, 2017 is the first time that I, I was on my way to the gym and I got a call from Michael's manager and she said, how soon can you be up in Midtown? 
Michael's at this hotel and I have him. It wasn't like he wanted to meet me. I think he, he did not want it. He wanted nothing to do with it. But she said, I have him here, come up, have a drink and leave. I just want him to meet you and get comfortable with you. So quickly like threw something on, got in an air-conditioned Uber this time, did not jog up. And that was the first time that I met him. But that was well over a year after I had started researching this thing. And then we didn't roll cameras until June 26, 2018. So it was a very, very long, it was almost two years of research before we first started filming the project. So what was that first meeting with Michael like? I mean, you weren't wearing Nikes, right? I was not, on purpose, by design. Because I had discussed this with some people, friends of mine and people in the industry. If and when this first meeting with Michael happens, is he going to think I'm a kiss ass if I'm wearing Jordans? Is he going to be offended if I'm not? Like, I don't know what kind of guy he is. So I figured I'd go agnostic and just wear, I put the same suit with no tie on because I basically have one suit. I never have to, that, that's, that's not, you know, part of my job is to wear suits. So put that same suit on and put dress shoes on so that he can't get pissed off at me for wearing it. They weren't Adidas dress shoes, you know, they, they were agnostic. So the bar was elevated up from the street. It's like a, it's an elevator that you have to take to another level to go to the lounge of this hotel. And I came off the elevator, this big, long, beautiful lounge. And I see these, at the end of the, like, you know, 100 feet from me on the left side of the room, there's a pillar. And I see these long legs protruding out from it. I was like, that's clearly him. And walked over there and then came around the corner and I saw that manager who had invited me up and she introduced me and I just, you know, that was kind of a surreal moment because this is a person who largely exists as a two-dimensional figure in your mind. He's a superhero. He's a guy who was on your wall as a kid. At that point, I had been in the business almost 20 years, but I had never been in the same room with him. The last time I was in the same room with Michael Jordan was when he scored 63 points on April 20th, 1986 against the Celtics. So this was surreal for me to be sitting there. But also, you just kind of like, you go into game time mode because if I blow that meeting, it's over. So you don't get a chance to even, quote unquote, enjoy the experience of like, oh, I'm meeting Michael Jordan. It's like, no, you got to need to nail this or at least walk out of here having not failed. You have to keep this, keep the ball rolling. Luckily, there's something in your head that overrides the feeling of fascination and awe that is you have a job to do. You're here to do a job and you need to accomplish this set of tasks. So. How much time, like, just throughout all the filming that you end up spending with, with Michael? I mean, even between interviews, outside of that, I mean, I imagine it was... I think it was probably a total of, like, 10 hours. We did three interviews totaling nine hours, or three interviews totaling eight hours or so, and then that, there was that hour or so that I spent with him that first night, and then a Master's Sunday of 2018, same hotel, and the same manager called and said, what are you doing tomorrow? She called on a Saturday night and said, what are you doing tomorrow? Because he had his um, high school all-star game, annual high school all-star game was going to be at Barclays. And she said, why don't you come up to the hotel and then drive with him in the car that takes him to that game and then just hang out in the suite and watch the game with him. So that was a couple more hours there where we just kind of talked about golf and, and uh, you know, had our own little side bets of who was going to win the Masters that year. But that was it. It was just... I think just to get him to know my face, which was hugely valuable. A guy like that, especially who's sick of hearing every single question 
that could be asked of him over the course of the last 30 years, at least needs to be a friendly face. When he comes in to sit down, he at least needs to know me and to trust that I have done my research, I've done my homework, and this story is going to be told comprehensively and responsibly. And that I'm not some fanboy wearing a, a Bulls jersey who's going to want his autograph and a picture at the end of this thing. I'm there to tell a story and I'm there to do a job. Did you ever, I mean, whether it was from Michael or from anybody else, just in the making of The Last Dance, was there ever anyone that was like, Jason, don't fuck this up, or like try to exude almost like creative control, or did they say, hey, we trust you, do your thing? Oh, there was, uh, not from Michael, but I mean, we had by far the most difficult aspect of the making of that doc was navigating the notes process and the feedback and the perceived ownership of the four entities involved. So you have Netflix, ESPN, the NBA, and the Jordan brand, each of which on their own is a multi-billion dollar brand, and each of which is not used to having to compromise with anybody for something that they feel like they own. The NBA, I'm sure, felt like he's an NBA player. This is all of our footage. We own this. Netflix, I'm sure, thought we paid for this thing. These guys are making this for us. We own this. ESPN, I'm sure, thought... We also paid for this, and we're the first ones on board. We have the NBA contract for X billion dollars. We own this. And then Jordan's people are thinking, subtract Michael from this thing, and there's no dance. Nothing's happening. So everybody felt that they were owning it. So that was really difficult was to, to have people agree on something and then get in a phone call immediately after a meeting with someone saying in my ear, yeah, I know you said that, but you know you got to do this, right? And then to have someone call me five minutes later and say, the exact opposite. I know you said that, but you have to do this instead of that. It was very, very difficult to know who my boss was a lot of times. And did you did you ever anticipate what it would turn into? Like, I mean, I imagine going into it, you you obviously wanted to put your heart and soul into it, wanted it to be good. But could you did you ever imagine it'd be regarded as probably one of the best sports documentaries ever? The short answer is no, of course not. And and the longer answer is that I'm acutely aware of why it took hold culturally the way that it did because we were also starved for original entertainment and starved for sports. At that moment, we had literally a captive audience. People were held captive in their homes or, or they agreed to be in, inside their homes. So I'm very proud of the way it was made and I'm very proud of our entire team and the jobs that they did to make it what it was. I also understand that it had an exponentially larger footprint than any of us could have possibly. When I say, oftentimes people say, you can't imagine. We never could have imagined this. You never could have imagined there would be a global pandemic that would keep everybody in every country in the world inside their homes. And we happen to be doing a piece about maybe the greatest sports icon of our lifetime that the entire globe would want to watch. There's very few people that it would have appealed. That's what was so shocking to me or so intriguing. We did a ton of press during the six weeks that that show was out. And I knew if I was doing an interview with someone in LA and it was like the host of a morning show in LA, they were in their living room and so was I. Because we're all American and we're all in our American living rooms. But then you would do something with someone in Australia and Vietnam and Portugal and London and everybody's at home. It was shocking to think like, oh my God, we can't just like turn on cricket because on the other side of the world, they're playing cricket and everything's okay. Nothing was okay. So I can't think of another subject that would have appealed to everyone in the world quite the way that Michael Jordan did during that time. So yeah, there's no way we could have anticipated the reaction it was going to have and the impact it was going to have. <laughs> 
While Jason's creative career has focused heavily on sports and athletes, he recently had the opportunity to direct a very different project, Netflix's Countdown Inspiration4 Mission to Space, which chronicled the first ever all-civilian orbital SpaceX mission. Unlike many documentaries which feature archive footage that may be many years or even decades old, Jason was challenged to capture this historic mission in real time. I asked him to elaborate on how he and his team approached this project. We had practice in that a lot of the people who played key roles in making that had cut their teeth on HBO's 24-7 series, which I show ran for the first two iterations of that show. Now they're on their 30th iteration. So we were used to having to do things the day of or turn something around for the next day. We were shooting for people who were unfamiliar with 24-7. We were following around boxers for a four-week project, but we would pride ourselves on having stuff that was shot on Saturday afternoon in their camps, and it would make it into the show that was broadcast globally on Sunday night. So we were working quite literally around the clock to make those shows happen. So this was kind of like getting back to our roots, but it was really fun to do something outside the sports realm, which I had pretty much never done. I had always wanted to do that, but that's one of the gifts that Last Dance gave was that now it opened up doors that until that point were close to me. Yeah, because I mean, it, it's something I noticed. I, I was watching it recently. It's shot very 24-7 mm -hmm. style, right? So you've got these four astronauts. Same that are, people. They're really civilians. Mm -hmm. And then you, you're going into their background, their story, their family. I'm curious, as, as you were doing all those things, obviously with space, there's, you know, there's risks, right? With any, you know, with any launch or anything like that. And this idea would be that you'd film leading up to the launch. And then there would also be episodes after the launch. Were there any conversations thinking about what happens if this doesn't go the way we, you know, we intended to? We probably were less responsible about having those conversations than we should have been. We did discuss it, but it was very brief that like, hey guys, we're all professionals, we'll all adjust if something goes wrong. What they say in, in space parlance is if there's a bad day. Yeah. If we have a bad day, I mean, it's comically euphemistic, but I don't think you could operate in that world unless you operated in euphemisms. Because if you said, okay, if we blow up on the launch pad, then this, no, it's easier to say bad day. So we did have you know, a few bad day conversations. And really that was about timeline. It was with Netflix because they were saying, they're just being responsible by saying, all right, what happens if something goes wrong? When can we expect that final episode and how much longer will it take to produce? We had grown so close to the people who were in that rocket that it would have been hard to continue. But these are people we came to know and really, really care about over the course of the six or seven months or whatever it was that we documented them. So getting some of the footage once, you know, once they were in space, right? You had to, I guess, delegate some of the cinematography responsibilities to the astronauts. Yep. Um, how did you prepare them? There wasn't much. I mean, because there was such a, they're in a space that's about the size of a minivan. So there's not much they can do. What I said was just try and film out as much as you can, but don't shortchange the experience of being inside the thing too, because we want to see what it's like for you guys. So they had five iPhones with them, the fifth one being the Netflix, quote unquote, the Netflix iPhone. And that's what all the footage that we were going to be able to use would be on. And there were so many parameters put in place to separate us from SpaceX, because there's obviously that's a highly, highly, highly secured operation. But the people there were so great and they came to trust us, I think, so much that one of the most incredible moments of my career, if not my life, the night that they re-entered and came back to Earth. It was three days after the takeoff. They had to be taken in a police-escorted caravan 
from the launch pad to a building where they were going to go undergo medical testing. And Kid, the guy with the flat top, who's Jared's kind of right-hand man, who we're shooting with right now at SpaceX, as we speak right now, we have a crew with those same guys. So there'll be more to come in the years to come with, with all these characters. He came over to the car with a Ziploc bag with five phones in them and said, I need these back in an hour. These came straight from the space capsule that had splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean an hour before and had not been touched by anybody since they had been in outer space. And my producer, Jake, and I were sitting in our shitty little rental car with these cell phones and we opened the bag and started playing the videos. And this is the first time that anyone had ever seen these videos that were taken by the first civilian mission to space. It was, it was surreal. So... They did an incredible job, and I think that we've learned, for better or worse, how we can improve that process and improve the aesthetics of that when they when they go up again. And were you when in the minivan? Were you guys like airdropping the, the the clips? Yeah, we had to. <laughs> we had a big. Um, well, the, the astronauts had a big welcome back a splashdown party at this condominium complex where we were staying just off the base, and we went back to be a part of that. But because we were staying with their families, and it was quarantine. So we were all quarantined with their families. And that made us a lot closer too, because typically you'd be at the hotel and the family would be at the condo. We needed to shoot at the condo and we couldn't go to the hotel and come back because we might give them COVID or catch it and give it to them. So we were there with them. So we became kind of like astronaut in-laws <laughs> that week, you know? And we went back to our apartment and there was a woman who was in charge of taking those phones and airdropping the stuff that we needed to edit with and then sneaking it back to Kid so that he could give it back to the SpaceX people. There was one of those moments where you're like, man, I cannot believe that this is my job, that I'm this lucky. So in all these years, I mean, in, in working with and getting the opportunity to interview all these like high-performing, really exceptional human beings, and just what has really stood out for you? I mean, I imagine it's been very inspiring. I imagine you, you learn a lot just being in the same room as Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Michael Jordan, you know, Kobe Beyond. Have there been any like certain takeaways that like that stay with you? One of the common denominators with all those people you mentioned is that they don't look back. And in my business, you want them to. So they're reluctant to sit down. You have to strap them into a chair and say, take me back to that moment in 1986 when you scored 63. What were you thinking? They're not used to doing that. When, when we were first researching the Under the Giant doc and I was being vetted by WWE, I had to go through all these henchmen and the last guy you have to meet with is Vince McMahon. So I went into his office and I was saying to him that earlier that day, the historian librarian of WWE had brought me to this warehouse in Connecticut where all of these pieces of history, of wrestling history are stored. As I said earlier, I'm not a huge wrestling fanatic, but people who are would be in awe of the little and big. They have the ring from the first WrestleMania there and then they have little like tools and costumes and and photos upon photos and magazines and memorabilia. There's a method to the madness with them, but it looks to the outsider like it's just in piles on shelves. It looks like Home Depot. And I'm sure they know how to find certain things, but it just looks like this beautiful menagerie of all of these wrestling history all in one room. And I said to him, do you know how much you could monetize that? Do you know that people would come from far and wide to walk through that museum? And he said, I never think about it. I ne I'm just always thinking about moving forward. So these people, these men and women who are or these icons to us, they're sharks. And again, this goes back to like the paranoia and fear of failure thing. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. 
it's a gift and a curse. It's a gift, obviously, because it's gotten them to where they are. But it's the curse is that you want these people to have the the pleasure of sitting back and reflecting on what they've done to get where they are and to take pride in that and to express pride in that and then to maybe offer up some wisdom about how they did it, you know? So to sit these people down, it's almost cathartic sometimes is that they enjoy it. Once they know they're strapped in and they have to look back and they can almost become wistful because they don't get a chance to do that that often. And when they do see the final product, because I imagine some of them probably still watch it, right? When it either goes up on HBO, Netflix, wherever. Do you ever get a call from them and just giving you feedback saying, Jason, thanks for you know telling that story that way or you presented it with love and care. Do you get any feedback? By and large, no. And that's, by the way, that's not my job. I'm not there to be their lifelong friend. It's great. And there are relationships that I have from all of the projects we've done over the years that I still know some of these people. Often it's people behind the scenes, the big iconic people. It's not like I'm, I'm hanging out with Michael Jordan and Vince McMahon playing golf with them. But I remember the Fab Five doc, Steve Fisher was, was their coach. And he was fired due to some of the controversy that stemmed from that Fab Five team and teams later on who were taking money and just behaving inappropriately. And Fisher, I feel, was scapegoated because he was the head coach, but there were things going on with boosters and insiders that he you know, may or may not have been privy to. I just know that he could not have been a nicer guy. And this, this, of all my travels in this business, he's one of the nicest, finest people that I've ever met. And he had the respect of so many, all of his players, to a man, worship that guy and love him. And he was reluctant to let us in. You know, we, they had um, home video footage of them. He, he took the guys on a trip to Europe. He and his wife took all the players to Europe to play in some exhibition games after their freshman year. And there was home video of that, and I knew it existed, and he was reluctant to let us have access to it. And Jalen Rose had to impress upon him, like, I know this guy, Jason. He's going to do the right thing with it. So it was a lot of work, and I completely understand. By the way, if I was him, I wouldn't want to give it out either. If someone tried to do a doc on me, they'd be miserable because I wouldn't want to give them it. I'm, I'm a private person, and I completely respect that. I got the nicest voicemail from him that I still have on my phone right after that doc aired, thanking me for telling the story and, and saying that he thought we did a, a great job. So those are rewarding to get those kind of things. But by and large, I'm not there to invite these people to my birthday party and hang out with them. You're there to tell their story. And it's a privilege enough. Like I'm not an autograph hound. I'm not a, a picture hound or anything like that. I just, I feel lucky enough that I get to have the experiences meeting these people and seeing what makes them tick. So looking ahead and in, into the future, what's driving you at this point? Like what excites you or are there, are there certain types of projects that you get excited about or want to be able to do? I guess, what does that look like? I'm working on a few projects right now that are non-sports from a directing standpoint. So there's a true crime series that we're doing, a couple of music projects I'm really excited about that we're doing. But what really excites me too is the other side of this, which is like playing a different sport, is the business side of it. And I've really dove into starting my own company in earnest. You know, I've had my own LLC and I've been paying people from that since 08. But now we're actually hiring up staff and we're getting office space in New York. And, you know, I mentioned that program we have for the young filmmakers and just building a team and being more of a coach than a quarterback, that's what really excites me these days. I have to, and I've always kind of like kept my schedule in my head. Like if we had this appointment for this podcast, I just know it two weeks out. Be, for some reason, I just could remember that. I can't do that anymore because there's a lot of things on the calendar. 
And I've never been that organized with that stuff. But now with the help of my wife, I just got married in October. So that's a new, <laughs> that's a new challenge as well, or a new pleasure, I should say. She is a scheduler and she is a color coder and she is great at that. So if you look at my schedule on my phone right now, every project that I have has a color to it. So when I look at my day, my week, my month, I can know where my time is going to be spent and if I have to reallocate some of that time. So it's fun to have to discipline myself because I really want, I decided in November right after I got married to say yes to everything. And that meant hiring staff. That meant finding office space. It's very like Darwinian, like, I've never been that kind of guy. It's always been like kind of seat in my pants. I've been the single dude who works his ass off and has a bit of a social life, but that's about it. It's just project to project. And now I'm the married dude who is overseeing other people who are those passionate directors that I was and will continue to be. And that's exciting because, I mean, you get an opportunity to scale your impact, right? Well, we're here recording a podcast. You've got a crew filming at SpaceX. You've got other projects in motion. Like now, I think, it, you know, as a whole, and at least I believe that that type of thing is important. Like the impact that, you know, these films, these documentaries make on people, not only do they inspire, which I think is one of the best things you can do, you know, for a human being, but they're, even the, the SpaceX documentary, I mean, they were raising so much money. I think it was, what, what over $200 million? Almost $300 million yeah. for St. Jude, yeah. So, I mean, I guess when you, when you see that, is there a part of you that's like, man, we got we to gotta do more of this. We got to yeah, scale this. That's, yeah, the charitable stuff is great, but it's, it's to give people opportunities. I hate using the word art or artist or whatever, but what is art designed to do except to evoke emotion in us? And part of that emotion is inspiration. So to give more people the opportunities to express their voice artistically and inspire more people, like that's what I'm really fired up about now is that there's younger people who are coming up underneath me who I can oversee their projects and put them in a position to win. I always tell whoever's doing something with me or underneath me, I'm not gonna, you're not going to fail because I'm not going to let you. I promise you that. So you're going to succeed. Let's figure out how we're going to do it, but I'm not going to let you fail. And then there's people from my past who the business has changed so much and there's been layoffs everywhere and COVID hit. Now I can give some of my mentors opportunities and they're directing films that they always wanted to direct, passion projects that they wanted to do that I knew about when I was under them. So there's some full circle moments that are really cool there too, but at the same time, mentoring younger talent. It's a really, really exciting, fun time. Jason, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer to me means finding your own voice, having your own voice, finding your own voice, and inspiring others to do the same. I want to give a huge thank you to Jason Hare for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Jason said that the role of a leader is to put the people around you in a position to succeed. Clarity is kindness. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Jason Hare, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with renowned trucking attorney, author, podcast host, and managing partner of Craig Kelly and Faultless, David Craig. Turns out that I had stage three colon cancer. They had to do emergency surgery on me. I had a lot of complications. I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks. I guess there's different ways to look at it. I looked at it and said, I'm going to step things up. I'm gonna make my firm grow. I'm gonna make sure my firm survives without me because my fear was my firm would not survive without me. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mm-hmm.